Welcome back to 4 for 4's The Most Accurate Podcast. As always, I'm your host, John Dangle, and it's a very special episode here at 4 for 4 because we are joined today by none other than our own TJ Hernandez. TJ, how is everything going, buddy? What's up, dude? Uh, I'm I'm doing great. Kind of finally getting in the flow of, of redraft. I've been working on uh, some other things this off season that aren't directly related to uh, to redraft or season long. So uh, getting my beak wet here with uh, best ball mania launching and whatnot. I was updating content schedule, and it hit me that really we have only a month of the quote unquote <laughs> off season left. Yeah, and that's like if we consider this next month an off season since yeah. something happens every single day. So yeah, we are gearing up. I'm very excited as I'll talk about the end of the show as well. I might as well move it to the front here because John Paulson's putting out his projections Friday, I believe is what he was targeting, which means then next week, especially we come out with my best ball tiers. You're wrapping up your best ball strategy article. And then also putting out videos and articles on d- exploiting default ATB across sites for best ball and redraft. Like we really are getting going here. And so it is a fun time. And because of that, you are here because you have already nearly wrapped up your series, the Best Ball Mania Bible, describing the best strategies for the underdog Best Ball Mania 3 tournaments. And I actually just want to get right in here because everyone is curious about the... Well, actually, tell us a little bit about the series before I start picking apart your brain with questions. Yeah, uh, so for those that are new to Underdog or new to Best Ball, Underdog has been doing a, this is three years running now, they've been doing their Best Ball Mania tournament. They have some other tournaments too, um, but just in general, Best Ball tournaments are relatively new to the industry um, rather than your typical season-long league where you're only playing against 11 other people um, or even just your typical Best Ball league where it's the same, you're you're just competing against 11 other entries. it's been thousands now it's up to hundreds of thousands of other entries um a a four-round tournament this year first place is two million dollars so uh you could go at underdog and look at the exact structure details for that but basically what this has been is going through the data of those first two years and really just trying to tease out winning strategies that we can use for this tournament a lot of people that are familiar with best ball might look at that and say, well, you know, we have tons of data on on these types of things. We kind of know what works in best ball. Um, like I said, we've never really had the, these size of tournaments before, this breadth of tournament. Uh, so looking for things that are unique to the tournaments. And again, a, a, one thing we saw a lot last year was so many people looked at that first best ball mania and said, oh, this is what you need to do. This is the gospel. Now we have two years of data. What what? lined up with what we saw the first year what didn't line up um just trying to figure out figure these things out because tournament is a a very different beast um like you might know from dfs i mean when you're trying to beat hundreds of thousands of people instead of uh 11 it's really different and a lot of best ball uh formats have been either full ppr tight end premium underdogs unique in that in that it is half PPR, no defense, no kicker. So again, a lot of the old best ball things that we might think we know maybe don't work in this format where it is half PPR. And when Paulson puts out those projections, we will have articles on how to fine-tune them for FFPC underdog tournaments. But for underdog and specifically, you and I have talked about this behind the scenes. This one is so unique and that having 415,000 yeah, entries yeah. over a 17-week contest, mm-hmm. you literally have to be perfect every single week. Like not only do you have to get the structure right, and that's the most important part, you then have to get into the player analysis and get the players right too. And that's yeah, much absolutely. more difficult since it entails yeah. like to have a little bit of hubris and luck all at the same time. And that's mm-hmm. why I'm excited to talk about it with you. And I want to start with the actual infrastructure 
of yeah. winning lineups and potential yeah. similarities and trends among those that advance. So in your research, what was the most important criteria you discovered among those lineups that played into the final rounds? Yeah. So, so you mentioned the final round and I think it's really important to make that distinction when we're talking about um, any of the strategies we're going to talk about in this podcast, right? Because two things that we really look at are uh, first round advance rates, which just give us a really big sample. Every team over the last two years that has got out of their initial 12 team league. And that's important, right? Because the more you do that, the more chances you're going to give yourself to advance in the tournament. You obviously have to get out of there, but also building in upside to our team, things that might differ from uh, getting out of that first round to making it to the final round actually having a chance to win two million dollars so just always keeping that in mind um when we talk about those things but to to that point um i'll, I'll just go over some of the things that i have found that work both in getting out of that first round and that also we found similar in that final round teams and one thing that has just really stood out over the past couple of years has just been the domination of teams that have used two quarterbacks as opposed to three and and we'll talk about this when we we get into some of the drill down into some of the um positional draft strategies and and when to be taking these players but very overwhelming out of all the other positions when we just talk about how many players to take at each position the two versus three quarterback uh has, has been the one that's really stood out and it kind of makes sense when you think about it. We only have 18 roster spots. Uh, you, It's not a position that you can use to fill your flex position, where even with tight end, if you draft two instead of three, sometimes that third tight end might fill your flex position for you. Uh, and you're... You want to be concentrated. A lot of what we're doing is going to be like concentrating on offenses that we're targeting, not necessarily players. So if we have a lineup where we're just kind of trying to concentrate on a couple offenses or a couple quarterbacks, it's going to be easier to do that than with three quarterbacks. Now, with all that said, the 2020 championship ch champion did use a three quarterback build, so we shouldn't completely discount that. But that's one thing that's really stood out just in terms of how many players, the very basis, the very skeleton of best ball. That, that's the one strategy that's really stood out, whether it's getting out of the first round or making it to the final round. So even though we are trying to be pragmatic, right, in the first round and allow the board to come to us, mm -hmm. uh, is there a a strategy you mentioned two QB builds, yep. but is there an overarching strategy we should be looking at whether we're in the first or the back um, making our first pick? Yeah. Uh, again, going back to what I looked at initially with the first round playoff advance rates, and, and this is kind of prevalent, whether you're playing in a best ball tournament underdog or just a regular 12 team league on underdog, we'll call it like the safe strategy versus the upside strategy, the safe being getting out of that first round or AKA winning your league. Uh, what we've really found, as you said, kind of starting with that early round strategy that some form of hero running back or what I've called superhero running back uh, this year. That means taking one or two running backs in the first two, we, you call it first three rounds, but I like to call it the first two rounds. Um, not taking another running back to later in the draft, kind of avoiding that running back dead zone. Um, so again, one to two running backs in the first two rounds and then not taking another running back till round seven, eight, sometimes even like round 10 and then getting two quarterbacks in the mid rounds, not reaching for a high end quarterback, but trying to lock in 
two top, we'll call it top 12-ish quarterbacks in terms of ADP without getting like the, the first or second quarterback off the board. Combining those two things together has just shown advance rates, whether it be advancing to the playoffs or advancing to the final round. Some form of those two things has just really been dominant roster strategy asked you two questions and you've already mm-hmm. come back with two strong answers that now I have to untangle this web and I knew this was <laughs> yeah, going to yeah. happen. Yeah. And so, so let's go get back to superhero RB then because everyone, everyone's aware of zero RB. Everyone's aware of anchor where you take one early and then leave it, leave it alone. Uh, with superhero RB, you said two in the first three rounds, ideally mm-hmm. the first two rounds mm-hmm. and then wait till later. What yeah. exactly do you mean by later? Like, is there a specific round people should be targeting their third running back? And how many is there a specific number we're looking mm-hmm. to have? Yeah, I, I've I've kind of gone through as many iterations of this as I can, and we'll stick with the superhero RB. Let's just let's just say for conversation's sake, your first two picks are running backs. And again, this is half PPR, so I, I mean, I, I think that probably has a little bit to do with it. We haven't seen this work as strongly in PPR best ball leagues. Um, I, I think you probably don't want to take another running back until kind of the cutoff for what where we've seen these advance rates really start to spike is after round six again that's kind of been what we've called the running back dead zone so rounds three through five three through six just loading up on whatever other positions wide receiver one dominant tight end maybe get one other quarterback in that mix um but where we really have seen it take off the advance rates is when people really commit to the strategy not taking their third running back till round nine or ten because then it allows you to not only uh bulk up your other positions because there's so much value at quarterback tight end and then there's just a, a a gang of wide receivers you could load up on in those rounds but it really uh leans into the strength of your team like if you're spending that much draft capital on a position early and this goes for any position really that much draft capital early in the draft if they don't hit your team's probably going to have a really rough time anyway right so the the idea of taking two running backs in the first rounds and then say oh this guy's a great value in round five i'm going to take him how often is that guy cracking your roster or how weak are you making your wide receivers or your, your top tight end by taking that guy that often isn't going to crack your top two when you've already taken those two dominant guys. So really waiting as long as you can, if you're going to commit to this type of superhero build. And then to the same point, if you're spending that much draft capital on um, that kind of uh, position, you don't need to go overboard on, on the the running back build. So usually like five running backs is going to be more than enough. If you take two in the first two rounds, you're going to have a little bit of weakness at the other position. Like that's probably going to be like a nine wide receiver type build. So I, I would say third running back somewhere in rounds seven through 10 later, the better I think. And I'm usually probably only, only ending up with five running backs in that build. If you, Take four because you're so confident in your superhero build. Is there a specific position like wide receiver tight end that we should be looking to allocate that last spot to with like 10 wide receivers or three or four tight ends? Or does it really depend on your build? It's roster dependent. Yeah, I I think it's almost always going to be allocated to my wide receiver. Um, you're going to be building floor and upside through your quantity of wide receivers or, or and a third tight end. But on a week-to-week level, those even the best wide receivers in the league, right, they're going to have weeks where they only get, you know, seven or eight targets, seven or eight catches. Uh, even even to Devontae Adams uh, last year, there's going to be weeks where he gets you seven for 70 and no touchdown. Um, that's, just, that's just not a fantastic fantasy week. But with, 
an extra wide receiver, whether it's the, the wide receiver one on a team or wide receiver four on a team, you're going to have more opportunities for them to quote unquote hit in a given week. So, uh, yeah, even if I do take, yeah, say, say four running backs, which has worked, um, I, I, I don't think I'm just like blindly allocating that. Most of the time, it's probably going to be to another receiver. You also mentioned two quarterback builds in between the superhero RB builds. And so is there a precise round we are trying to draft our QB one and two? Yeah, the where where again, kind of going through all of the iterations, one thing that has really stood out, again, this is just a two-year sample, but what we've seen these last two years that kind of ties into what we've seen just with the quarterback trend in general is that reaching for your quarterback, for your first quarterback, hasn't been uh, overly profitable. There is some upside in having, last year, a lot of Josh Allen teams made it. He was the first or second quarterback taken off the board, um, depending on, on your league. But in general, kind of nabbing your quarterback in round six through 11 has really shown uh, extreme returns, at least in the first round advance rate and even bigger in round six through nine. And, and I, I think the round six through nine for a couple reasons compared to around six through 11, six through 11, you're kind of getting at like QB four to fringe top 12 QB range. You might get some QB 13, QB 14 round six through nine. You're almost always getting like a QB five or six with like a QB nine or 10. And the reason that's worked is for a couple reasons. One, we've just had the, um, the mobile, but also efficient quarterback really show up in these top quarterbacks in fantasy over the last couple of years, which has made it very easy to predict. We've been, we've become phenomenal over the past couple of years at predicting top 12 quarterbacks over the past three years only two to three quarterbacks drafted outside the top 12 has finished as such. And in years before it's kind of been like you can grab there's five or six late round quarterbacks that could crack the, the top 12. That just hasn't been the case. So we want to lock those guys in, not just because they're predictable, but also because the, the combo of the mobile and efficient quarterback, they just are scoring so many more points than the other fantasy quarterbacks. And the, you know, we see the, the Kirk cousins throwing, 37 38 touchdowns and still can't hold a candle to guys like Jalen Hurts who might be scoring less touchdowns through the air but just doing so much on the ground so the quarterback scoring has become way less linear over the past couple years in the past it's just been the drop off from quarterback 10 to quarterback 19 hasn't been that extreme now it's really extreme so getting a couple guys in that 6 to 10 range has been really important you mentioned grabbing the QB2 by nine, and usually with all these strategies in my head while drafting, it has to become muscle memory very quickly, especially Absolutely. when you do only slow drafts like me. I just yeah. find it easier to look at 20 notifications at once and then rattle it all <laughs> off, yeah. uh, knowing what's going on. By like by like June, I think last year I had week 17 games memorized, and it's like oh, yeah. I know what I'm, I'm doing. Try, I'm trying to have that memorized by tomorrow. Schedule's yeah. drop tonight. <laughs> uh, but no, so – with six nine though, that's mm -hmm. that's it's a very nice strategy to remember. It's no big very deal. Nice. Having said that though, is there a diminishing return point where someone should scrap this idea and maybe pivot to three quarterbacks? Like, at what point should we ensure we hit the panic button and say, "I need QB two because we're after round nine right now. We're in X round, and I need to make sure this happens, no matter what the quality of the player is around him on the board left." Yeah, th this goes for for any whether we're talking about the quarterback strategy or whether we're talking about the the overall roster construction. I mean, anytime you get into a situation where you're you're forcing a build or you're locked into a build, whether it be um, in the round you're in or just even going into the draft, I, I think you're kind of already 
behind uh f- for the vast majority of the things we're going to talk about here it, it's going to fall into the kind of this category of letting the draft come to you you talked about uh the, the early round just kind of getting your natural um, exposure to guys just how the draft falls and a lot of these things are just going to be determined on how your draft is going where you're positioned in the draft right because if you're if you're drafting number one you're going to it's going to be way easier to have a hero RB than it is if you're drafting 12, right? Especially if the first eight picks off the board are running back. That goes the same for quarterback. If you're in a draft where quarterbacks are flying off the board, going around earlier than usual, don't force it. Don't take your second quarterback in the seventh round because you took, you know, you took, uh, whatever Josh Allen, the fourth deck. Oh, I need two top 12 quarterbacks. And they're going on. Now you spend a, a, a two, two uh, picks in the top six rounds on quarterback. Like, don't do that. Let this draft come to you. A, a lot of being successful in these drafts still comes down to exploiting ADP. As you talked about um, getting extreme value on, on these players, not just teams, not just players that are going to beat their ADP by a round, but players that are going to being drafted as, as, you know, wide receiver fours, they're going to finish the wide receiver ones. If those players are available and your draft dictates that, you know, it, it doesn't make sense to take an early quarterback, um, it, by all means do that. We've seen in the final rounds, there, there were quite a few teams that only ended up with one of these mid round quarterbacks and then decided to take two late QBs. Uh, going back to that 2020 championship team, I, I believe it was, a, a Matt Ryan team that actually ended up winning the championship. If I remember back then the week 16 team, it, it was when it was still a 17 week season. Um, I, I believe it was the Matt Ryan stack that did very well. So we, we still want to in, in poker terms, give ourselves outs, right? We don't want to be very strict in these rules. We want to be very fluid in these drafts. Let's dive into wide receiver a bit, because yeah. I think everyone enters drafts and just thinks they want to come away with nine to 11. Uh, let's, well, let's say eight to 11, but there has to be clearly more to it than just just number. So yeah. really, when are we ideally looking to take wide receivers? And are there kinds of wide receivers that we're trying to take? Not like target hogs, right? That goes without saying. But like, yeah. are we looking to, and this, this goes into probably even a bigger question and a bigger answer, but like, are we making sure we correlate wide receivers with a certain position on our roster? Your first question: When are we trying to take quarterbacks? Yeah, let's back I, I up think, and do the let's yeah, do the first yeah, one because I think they're, they're yeah, two really part, big questions. Yeah, um, I I kind of look at core. Uh, I'm sorry, wide receiver and and running back strategy kind of is one and the same. They're just the, they're always going to be the inverse of each other, right? Uh, if we're if we're getting our wide receivers early in the draft, then we're going to end up with less than of them. If we're getting our running backs early in the draft, we're going to end up with more wide receivers. Um, so it, it's really, they're, they're really a function of one another. So like I talked about with my superhero running back builds, how many wide receivers I'm taking is really going to be dependent on one, my early round capital, and two, how well they fit into my roster. Um, if I end up with two or three like target hogs, if I somehow end up with a, I, I don't know, a a a, a cup um, Devonte Michael Pittman build, I'm going to be a lot more comfortable coming out of that draft with seven wide receivers than if I don't get my first wide receiver until you know even the second, even wait until the second round and maybe only coming out of the first four rounds with two wide receivers. So it's going to really just go back to that um, initial early round draft equity is how I'm going to kind of think about how I'm drafting each position. And as you said, a lot of this is muscle memory. If you do 
tens or even hundreds of these drafts, especially over the last couple of years, um, you kind of really fall into this pattern. I don't want to say fall into this pattern, but get this muscle memory of understanding I'm the top end of my roster is kind of weak based on, on how I started. So I might pass up on what I think is a quote unquote, good running back value in these middle rounds, because I realize I really need to beef up my roster construction at wide receivers. So I think a lot of it just goes back to that early round equity and how you are um, allocating number of players at each position. Everyone of course, likes making sure with the wide receiver position, they stack with their quarterback. Do you have any thoughts? Have you done any research into mm -hmm. perhaps, let's say, one, like the wide receiver one on the team yeah. drafting with your quarterback? Maybe the wide receiver three or four, like an ancillary option. Maybe two wide receivers double stacking the bottom tier on that offense. Like, what are your thoughts on how to stack, in particular, the wide receiver position with your quarterback? That I've kind of just started digging into um, the stacking data. Sam Hoppin at 444 is actually working on a stacking tool that we're going to be releasing to the public here for underdog-specific leagues uh, in, in the next couple of weeks. What is is crazy, and this this goes to whether it's these final round rosters we've talked about or just general advance rates, the wide receiver stack that has really stood out above all has been teams that have used a wide receiver four on their roster. And when I say, yeah, when I say wide receiver four, we're talking about in terms of um, ADP relative to their teammates. So wide receiver four is the fourth teammate drafted from his own team. And we have actually seen uh, wide receiver one stacks be, do pretty poorly compared to a bunch of other stack combos. I think that is just a function. It's still one of the highest used stacks and one of the most represented stacks in the finals. But again, I think that's just because it's so um, so popular. I think that's a function of teams or, or, or fantasy managers are really reaching to complete these quarterback wide receiver stacks, forcing these wide receiver one stacks with their quarterbacks where with these wide receiver fours, or we could just talk about ancillary ancillary players in general, when we get deeper on the depth chart, especially a, a, a position like wide receiver, where a lot of players are going to be involved throughout a season, there's a couple things that are going to happen. One, I think we're just generally pretty bad at projecting how that plays out over the course of the season. I think we're really good at knowing who's going to be the wide receiver three in week one. Pretty good at figuring that out. Who's going to be the wide receiver three, or even wide receiver two come week 17 after injuries? After players play bad, after trades, after cuts, we're pretty bad at projecting that because it's hard to project 18 weeks out. We can't predict injuries for the most part. So I think there's just a lot of value in one, not reaching to complete a stack and two, kind of leaning into the unknown with whether it's a RB2 a, a, or a wide receiver four, how that position battle is going to play out, how these players are going to get opportunities later in the year. Um, some, of, some of those ADP values, of, as we discussed, that's where some of the best come from. Late round wide receivers have some of the highest hit rates in terms of advance rate over expectation of any position. You may have not reached this point yet, but any personal thoughts on what we should consider as reaching? Because this is something I always yeah. go back to uh, over and over again, like four or five spots. I, I, I do it. And I can't even tell you with certainty that it's not egregious, right? Like maybe it is egregious. I really don't know. And so what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I haven't quantified what would um, constitute a reach. I, I have done some um, quick and dirty research that has shown that teams that have um, 
advanced, whether it be past the first round or again to the final round, have been teams with some of the the biggest, um, let's call it draft equity in terms of ADP, players overperforming their ADP. Now, of course, a lot of that is just going to have to do with like if you hit on a Cooper Cup or something like that, like that's just going to skyrocket those numbers, right? So so that um, th- those numbers are kind of skewed by those types of players. I, I would say if you're drafting within the and this is anecdotal, I would say if you're drafting within the player's um, ADP round, so if he's going at at 6.5 overall and you take him at 6.3 to complete a stack, that's probably not very egregious, right? That player's there, we're playing for upside, you want that... um, you want to uh, complete those stacks, especially uh, schedules coming out tonight. We're getting week 17 games. Week 17 is is when you can win $2 million. I'm going to have more weight on um, on, on figuring out what players I, I want from the game. I think we got a leak that there's going to be a, a, um, a Bills-Bengals Monday night game week 17. Like I'm going to have a lot of Bills and Bengals on my team um, because that's most likely to be a high-scoring game. I want that to hit. But when you talk about reaching to complete those stacks, let's just think about how um, your players are going to score points. Let's, let's use that as an example. If I want a, uh, if I want a, a Stefan Diggs, Josh Allen stack for that week 17 game, and, and let's say I, I get Diggs and whatever his ADP is the second round. And, and I reach for Josh Allen five picks before what, what am I really accomplishing with that stack? These guys are studs. They're at the top of their, uh, their, their positional um, rankings. Their, their projections would be as high. Those guys are going to score kind of regardless of if their teammate goes off, right? Like Josh Allen can, can go off without Stefan Diggs going off. Stefan Diggs can, can have a big game and, and kind of just suck up all of the, the targets in the game. And it wouldn't be surprising if we get down to like an Isaiah McKenzie and pair him with a Josh Allen. I take Isaiah McKenzie around ahead of his 15th round ADP. That might be more valuable than, than taking Josh Allen or, or, or Stefan Diggs a couple picks early because it's going to be more likely that if my Isaiah McKenzie is brought along in a stack, it's because the team is going off. Does that make sense? Like Josh Allen and Stefan Diggs could kind of go off independent of a, a big game from their team where these ancillary players, most likely they're going to go off because their team is just having an insane game. Gabriel Davis AFC championship game. Yeah, I think it absolutely makes sense. And it actually feeds into the next question I want to ask you. And that is, in round 17 or 18, you know, we we all have reached that spot where it is a seemingly good player, at least we perceive so personally, and we want to grab them. But also there's an individual there that fits within our stacks. Do you think it's better, plus EV, to go ahead and get that player that fits in your stack? Or are we really just looking to complete the overall build? Like, is it better to be plus EV with your stacks, basically, or... Yeah, or do you think the build should come first? And if I'm in, if we're talking about specifically the last two rounds, and, and two, the two things I'm going to look to do is complete cheap stacks, target offenses that I love just in general. Again, I'll just keep using the Bills as an example. Even if I don't have any Bills and I, I just have a bunch of players like or whatever I kind of like, I'm going to take a, an Isaiah McKenzie every single time over a 
a, a Bears wide receiver three that I know is going to play 80% of snaps. I don't care. I, I'd rather have the, the, the player on the good offense or trying to get really unique, um, looking for players that are really down on the depth chart, rookies that aren't projecting for a ton of playing time but can have breakout um, years. So to answer your question, like I, I'm probably going to lean more towards completing stacks targeting offenses uh looking for players that aren't going to be on a lot of rosters late in the rounds than just completing a a roster build because here's what people get wrong a lot you just said we have a quote-unquote good player a player we like in round 17 or 18 for the most part and i'm not saying this is you but the average uh, average drafter if they have a good play in in week 17 or 18 unless that's Again, unless that's like a, a rookie you think could break out late in the season, most people are thinking, "Oh, this is a guy that's that can play seventy five percent of the snaps and you know get fifteen to sixteen percent of their team's targets." If that guy's getting you three to five fantasy points a week, that's my, that might as well be zero, right? Those points are almost never going to be usable. So the the quote unquote good plays in those late rounds are plays that are probably never going to win you tournaments, beating four hundred thousand people. So that's just a long way of saying I'd rather complete stack. I'd rather target really good offenses, even if it's a, a wide receiver five or a tight end three or something like that. And I want to stress this year in particular, since not only does the winner get 2 million, so everyone, of course, look at week 17 games, the best match, matchups and stack accordingly, since the highest scoring regular season team gets a million to him or herself, I do think it's important that once we get the schedule release, to use your tools in particular, especially when we do adjusted strength of schedule uh, at 444.com, I am going to break down like weeks 10 through 14. Like I do want to make sure I segment the easiest schedule, the easiest offenses in the last month of the season and then stack accordingly with that offense, trying to set myself up a la Sam Darnold's like easiest schedule for quarterbacks in the first six weeks last year. Like his his plummet, I guess, should have been more predictable. But, like, <laughs> yeah. his breakout, not the rushing yard so much, but, yeah. like, the easy matchups, there's a reason why we were drafting Sam Darnold through week six. And sure. Because even in redraft leagues, we knew about his schedule. And I want to do the same thing yeah. at the back end right. of the schedule as well. And are you are you saying, like, in, in terms of targeting that um, regular season uh, points? Is that what you're the talking last about? Last month. So, basically, weeks 11 through 14, 11, 12, yeah, 11 through 14, I do want to segment that and – and try to stack players within that range as well, just in case, like in that last month, I'm in a position, maybe not to make the playoffs, but I can be like the highest scoring team. I guess yeah. if you're the highest scoring team, though, you would be also. Yeah, I, I think I, 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 the, I, I've kind of thought about this a, a little bit. Um, I've only done one BBM draft, so I'm not sure how I'm going to adjust. I, I think the only thing that I would say about that is to, to win the highest scoring team, you you're gonna have to run pure no matter what to win, right? Um, but you're gonna have to run pure for uh, when did playoffs start? Week thir- week fourteen. You're gonna have to run pure for thirteen straight weeks to win that, right? Um, you're you're basically gonna, you're to, you're gonna have to beat out all four hundred whatever plus thousand players. So I I think probably maximizing these things like our, our first round advance rate. And um, as, as we get into like deeper player analysis and how to hit on the, these players, uh, maximize your chances for that. It might kind of like take care of itself for as something like if we're going to like really narrow in on, on a, on a schedule time, it makes sense to be week 17 because if we, if we do all the things that are right enough and we're lucky enough to get there again, only what 460, 
teams, I think, are, are making it. So what's that, 0.001% of the field is even making it to the final round? At, at the very least, we know like how to build to run pure. Like, right, If we make it there, we need to run perfect in week 17. We could kind of do things to, to maximize that idea. Um, I, I, I don't... I have to think about it a lot more. I I don't know if like prioritizing that is is going to do be something that would like push my builds per se. That makes sense. It's something I've just been thinking on since yeah, they, no, they it's, pretty it's much changed one. the rules. Yeah. And yeah. uh even mid drafts, you know, I've I've done less than ten, but also it's something I, I go back to and thinking, okay, we don't know the schedule just yet, but maybe if these builds aren't coming together, I then start stacking to just try to sure. form the highest scoring team as opposed to the team that's with the highest yeah, advance rate. That's, that's kind that's of fair. Or or yeah, if you have a I, I think if you if you really understand all of our uh, these concepts we're talking about, you, you do all, digging through the best ball Bible, do, digging on your own, and for whatever reason, like your team, and this is going to happen if you do upwards of 100 drafts, there's just going to be teams where you're like, I tried to build this upside, I, I got sniped, I just didn't do what I, I thought I was going to do. I, I think then, like what you're saying, like, you know what, let me just build this as a, as a regular season team. I, I think that can make sense. And how sick is it going to be when... Uh, Whoever wins just doubles down. The regular season winner just gets the two million and the one million. Insane, absolutely insane. Uh, we've talked about two quarterbacks, the yeah. round six through nine. Very nice strategy. We also discussed waiting for or your third running back and thus yep. starting your draft in the first two, ideally yep. two rounds, first three rounds, yep. two running back for superior RB. These are the ideal strategies. We have not talked about tight ends yet, though, and so. Where does tight end fall in all of this as we're trying mm-hmm. to secure the mid-round QB and early RBs? Tight end has, has been all over the place. And again, this this is just looking at two years of underdog data. If we look at a, um, a wide data set going back to like as long as best ball has been popular, we have seen elite tight end been of be a very good strategy taking one of the top three tight ends in the first three rounds in general um that has worked very well um but again those that's been a lot of ppr data that's been a lot of um uh leagues where it's tight and premium a lot of that data we really only have two years of this big field half ppr data i i still think that i want a fair amount of my exposure to the elite tight ends because it's going to be the biggest advantage gap even this year like i i don't think much has changed in terms of the the scope of of tight ends i don't think we're gonna have a a year where the gap isn't huge between the top few guys but at the same time those those options are are very limited right even if you want to take elite tight ends there's only so many of them and and depending on where you're at in your draft you you just might not be able to draft definitely a travis kelsey maybe even a mark andrews um and, and then you're, you're still going to kind of be at the mercy of the draft for a Kyle Pitts, Darren Waller type. So we've seen strategies kind of scattered all over the place. Uh, it, it's been very clear that, you know, taking more than three, um, you're, you're just kind of wasting uh, draft capital because we want to be loading up on those running backs, wide receivers. Uh, th- there hasn't been the only strategy that has been, grossly um unsuccessful has been a pure late round tight end strategy and that is because most people have been it's just if you're late round tight end not taking your first tight end until after let's say around 12 most people are just using three if one of them don't get hit you're kind of screwed so whether it's the the couple things i would really point out if you 
take a very early tight end, you're sticking with three. You're probably not taking your tight end two till like that, till that, uh, round 12 to 14 range. If you're not doing that, something that has really stood out for the final round teams, not in playoff advantage, but final round teams. We saw a lot of final round teams the last couple of years draft two tight ends in the middle rounds, like in rounds five through say 11. And that runs very contrary to what we have seen in playoff or league win rates or playoff advantage rates. And I think that has to do with upside over safety. We've seen a quite a few players over the past two years come out of the middle rounds as tight ends that have been dominant in terms of win rate. A couple of those players, Mark Andrews was the obvious one last year, and then Darren Waller and Gronk two years ago. So I think there's something to be said if you're talking about pure upside to targeting two tight ends in the middle rounds because that's where you can kind of maximize your opportunity to get these actual league winners at tight ends. Assume if Travis Kelsey doesn't have a career year like he did two years ago, I think you're maximizing upside there because we just haven't seen tight ends from the late round blow away the field. That's what I was talking. I was talking with you on Mark Andrews and Slack, and I did come into the season knowing I wanted to be behind consensus, below consensus on Andrews given most likely regression since if you look at the splits between Lamar Jackson and Huntley, very clearly like Andrews thrived with Huntley because he was more accurate 10 plus yards downfield. Having said that, to your point, I then backtracked a little bit because the mid-range is still, and not like not like mid-range and drafting tight ends middle rounds, uh, the mid-range of the quality of players I still think drops off significantly because it is the most volatile position. And so and, I, I got back on the Mark Andrews train. Yeah. Well, and when we had that talk, Marquise Brown was still on the team. So that's, that's a big that's difference. True too, that's, yeah. that, that's a really big turns difference. Turns out it helps too. out a lot when the leader in area suddenly <laughs> gets tipped off out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one other note on tight ends. One thing that, it, again, this is only a one year sample. It worked out last year because a couple of late round tight ends went off. But if we're talking about, Upside, if we're talking about being unique, last year, a lot of four tight end builds had very successful advance rates. Uh, That was a late round four tight end build. I I think there's something to be said for that kind of similar to the targeting a a wide receiver four because really bad at projecting that back end of a position. We saw, um, I I think Dawson Knox was the best example last year going off. So if you're going to get stuck in a late round tight end strategy, there might be something to be said for having four tight ends to maximize your upside at that position. Now you're still using almost 25% of your draft picks on a onesie position with that. So I think it's a very unique situation. I think it's something that I don't find myself getting stuck in a late round tight end strategy very often. I think it would be something where I need to have, um, an extremely strong and balanced build at all three other positions. But it is worth noting that four tight end builds did kind of pop last year in terms of the, that late round strategy. So probably not something you should do a lot. Um, but if you're thinking about ways to build a roster that other people aren't going to use, that, that's something to keep in the back of your mind. And I will tell you 
of course, we're talking about Best Ball Mania. Totally different here, mm-hmm. but I've actually been Definitely. behind the scenes yeah, yeah. hammering 16 leagues because I think the superhero RB, since we only think there are seven workhorses right now, like seven Bells cows, hammering superhero RB and then waiting and pile driving four tight ends the back. Like, I think that's been the absolute best strategy. And then, of course, mixing in the Konami code quarterbacks. Oh, yeah. Jalen Hurts is still going too far down the list. Um, and you don't even have to, like, take on the risk of Trey Lance and six teams um, since it, you are right, playing a right. floor, essentially. Yep. Uh, yep. You can grab another one. But, yeah, I think four yeah, tight like ends that. are – and in those fields, later easier way to go since I'm basically trying to make up all my BBM money entry fees on yeah. the ROI I get from the easier leagues, <laughs> yeah, the man. softer leagues. So that's what yeah, I'm that to. no, hey, that's uh, that's a good note. If if you're playing all all this talk, all these all this digital ink I'm putting on BBM. Um, Ninety nine point nine percent of us are going to run negative EV on this tournament. I'm it, going to have it is what, it, bullets in there. It, it, it is uh, what it is, man. The, the, it's just yeah. the structure is uh, the structure is brutal, um, but it's fun, and and we've never seen this type of upside in a tournament. So yeah, I, I think that again that the that's a whole another podcast. I think on on allocating your your money if you're thinking about it in terms of a a bankroll strategy. Um, th- what what are you trying to get out of best ball? Um, if you're trying to uh, return a tidy 20% and, and have a couple extra shekels for your, uh, for your Christmas gifts. Um, you, you might want to play some other games. Say it's the same as DFS conversation. Yeah, it's really, absolutely. what are you trying to do? Absolutely. Because there is no right or wrong answer unless you're like putting your mortgage on it every month, um, or every week. But other, otherwise, yeah, I mean, just if you want to play a $3 tournament with 400K entries because it has a top-heavy payout, go it. Like, I don't, I don't care. And it's, I it's mean, no fun. as long as you don't buy lose the $3, that's fun. And I don't want to speak for underdog, um, but if, if they follow suit, there's going to be more tournament options this year. There's going to be smaller buy-in tournaments. There's going to be larger buy-in tournaments with smaller fields. Um, the structures might even be a little bit better. So, uh, you know, all of these um all of the strategy will pertain to all of those tournaments that they end up launching so uh keep that in mind too you don't have to fire off uh whatever it is for thirty five hundred dollars at your 150 entries if you're not comfortable with it for all these reasons in the last five minutes that's why i'm dragging you back on in a couple weeks uh also because stacking in itself is a entirely different episode yep but to wrap this thing up before you get out of here I do want to ask, given the data that we have from stacks in the final rounds of previous years, are there any general positional trends that we should take away? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I, I could just kind of rattle off the. If oh, we we're, look, we're in no rush. Yeah, let's hear. Yeah, it. if we look at the the uh, stacks with the highest playoff advance rate over the last two years, the top five has been a QB with their RB two and wide receiver four, an RB two with their wide receiver two and wide receiver four an RB2 with a wide receiver one, wide receiver four, an RB3 with tight end one, and wide receiver one. Um, so just looking at those playoff advance rates, two things stand out to me. One, it's been a lot of the ancillary players. We only have one stack in there with a the wide receiver one. The rest have been, or sorry, two stacks in there with a the wide receiver one. The rest have been wide receiver twos, running back twos, which is crazy, and wide receiver fours. So that kind of goes back to the points that we talked about of, getting value on those late round wide receivers because uh, that's where the highest late round hit rates have been and how bad we've been. And I don't even think this might not even be a function of, of being bad at projecting running back 
ones and running back twos, but maybe projecting running back twos, running back threes. These late round running backs where we're not sure like who the value pick is. Um, a lot of times these running back twos have shown a lot of value. The standalone value of a second running back, not even necessarily in a timeshare, but just the opportunity to um, outperform their ADP by a big number shows up with these ancillary skill position players. So by targeting whether whether it's a, a offense that we know is going to be great or an offense that we have breakout potential not spending a, a ton of capital on completing those stacks, but getting their answer ancillary players. And if we look at the finals advance rates compared to the playoff advance rates, all of those things I said kind of hold up. It makes a lot of sense actually, because something I've always argued against zero RB. And again, I'm pragmatic. Like I do everything. I do whatever the board lets me to come. It's like memorizing quotes from Anchorman or Wedding Crashers, <laughs> whatever the hell your favorite comedy is in life. Uh, if you can remember those quotes, of course you can remember the four or five different strategies you have in a best ball draft. It's very simple. But uh, the argument against zero RB is that RBs have higher ceilings. And I understand like they're more volatile. They have lower floors. That's all we just wait and try to pick off the backups, right? But at the same time, like they're the ones who win you tournaments if you get it right. It's just a matter of getting it right. But for a, a tournament with 415,000 entries, you got to be right anyway. So I don't mind wasting those bullets on, like you said, superhero running back in hopes of getting those higher ceilings correct. So, somehow we've went um, 45 minutes on a best ball podcast without actually talking about zero RB, which might, which, which might be a record. I, I will say that uh, a, a note that, kind of encompasses everything we've talked about is that these extreme builds they get the most ink because they're the most polarizing and i i think what people really misunderstand screw how how to execute zero running back um you know or or whatever the extreme strategy you're talking about is people are going to talk about all that that all off season I think what goes overlooked is how little you need to implement these strategies for them to be effective. Last season, less than 5% of the field used zero RB. So it's not like it's this thing that's sweeping the nation everybody's using, but it was represented by 10% of the finals field. So even though less than 5% of the field used it, it showed up in 10% of, of the final round rosters. What that means is you don't need to go, you don't need to go into this, uh, best ball season thinking zero RB is my strategy. I'm doing it all the time. You only, if you're drafting a hundred teams, you only need to do it in six or seven drafts to be quote unquote overweight on, on what the field is doing. Right. And, and that's kind of naturally going to come to us. If the draft falls that way, usually a zero RB flow is going to just naturally fall to you six or seven times out of a hundred drafts. So you don't even need to force the issue on these extreme builds and you don't need to use them that often for them to be effective. And I've seen a few people for the clicks throw out the three RB 11 wide receiver builds. Uh, and again, they're showing you that on Twitter, thus it lives forever. But remember yeah. that literally made up like point. I think there was an actual number, like a 0.01% of last year's build. Like you don't need to go that extreme, as you mentioned, you can do it a couple times because you have 150 bullets or however many you know you're going to play. You know your number better than me, and yep. that's what you essentially wasted on. And then yep. from there, follow the strategy and the core principles. And and I think that I I kind of start. I think about my roster constructions. I if you're doing this and you're playing 150 teams, I think it's very smart to have some kind of tracking method. I, at the end of every draft, I just put you know, what draft strategy I used and my positional allocation at, at, at each draft, just so I, I know. But I'm not 
going out of my way to force these things until I'm, I don't know, let's say 50 drafts in. That It's kind of like the, the player exposure thing, right? We're, we're going to get natural exposure to the roster constructions or to players um, just through volume. And then when we get into the back half of the season, then we could start managing these things. We could look and say, Man, through fifty drafts, I've only done um, I've only done one zero running back build. So now, actually, I, I'm actually surprised. Let me do a couple more than I would expect, or vice versa. Like, oh man, I've I've fallen into seven zero running back builds through fifty drafts. Let me skip the next opportunity for what looks like a running back build um, and kind of start managing those things. So whether we're planting our flags on a player or a type of build, I, I think for the first half of the season, you could kind of just let it come naturally, and then later in the year is when we could really start managing these exposure whether it be to players or positional allocations. And I'll remind everyone that since we live in the age of distraction, our our attention span dwindles and that trickles down to ADP. Remember last summer how literally a player would bump up 48 hours later or fall down? Jamar Chase is the most recent example, but certainly not the only one for no good reason. Like it's just we get so distracted so easily. So remember, you're going to have your chance. If you might not be getting a player right now, um, like I'm not getting any Brees yeah. Hall right now, for example, but I also know I'm going to get Brees Hall eventually. I'm not mm-hmm. reaching for him. Exactly. I'm absolutely letting the summer come to me. And I think that's what's so important to remember in the best ball mania tournament. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think the, the, again, going back to what we talked about earlier in the, in the podcast, no matter how, good we are at managing these strategies these positional allocations these positional roster trends um we're still going to need to hit on these players to to do well and and i I think a lot of times we see I think that the casual will jump in our mentions and be like well did you have cooper cup well if you don't have him you're not winning anyway and that's a very uh short-sighted way to look at it if you do things like understand when players at each position are most likely to hit within chunks of a draft running back dead zone, understanding those type of things, understanding that wide receivers have the highest hit rates in the late rounds, you're going to maximize your potential to hit on those players. Right? So, so it's to have a dismissive attitude and be like, well, if I don't get that guy, I'm screwed anyway. You're, you're just kind of, uh, you're kind of doing yourself a disservice. Also, if we don't win because we don't have Cooper cup, we still get a million for second place. That's okay. Yeah. Glad they make it. Uh, TJ, tell everyone where they can find what we've talked about throughout the show and what else you have coming out at the site. All things um, myself and best ball are concentrated on 444.com. As you mentioned, the Best Ball Mania Bible, a six-part series. Uh, four of those parts are already out on the website, so go over there. Everything that we've talked about so far here is written on digital ink on there. Still have a couple uh, articles coming out. As we mentioned, we're going to really drill down into stacking in Best Ball Mania, and I'm going to write an article on how to build a unique Best Ball Mania team. Um, other than that, uh, we're focusing on a ton of player-level stuff at 444 right now, myself included. Really getting into these player profiles with John Paulson's projections coming out uh, this week or next Next week and us being done with the draft now having landing spots we can really start looking at these adps and f- start planning our flags on players going beyond what we just talked about and figuring out who we're going to be targeting the most in these drafts so um just hang around four for four hang on my twitter at, at tj hernandez and you'll find all of that good stuff Lots of dynasty content and even redraft player profiles from Justin Edwards, Chris Allen, Jennifer Eakins, the rest of the team as well. So the next calendar week especially is very big. Be at 444.com. And always remember, 
It's a new era. We come back in the off season consistently twice a week. So rate and review the podcast, please. It certainly helps us out. Until then, from TJ and I, thanks again. We'll see you next week.